right, scramble for Oceania, New Zealand edition. So, so Dave, I read some interesting stuff on New Zealand. It seems very similar to Canada, and I'll get into why I think that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of contrasting themselves with their what shall we say less evolved neighbor. <laughs> Australia. Um, And there's also a lot of good, um, what do we call it, like revisionist history, I guess, trying to look at it uh, in a new light starting in the 80s. So I found, um, uh, the first thing I found was actually a a Maori historian, Keenan is the name, Wars Without End, New Zealand's Land Wars, a Maori perspective. Um, Simons, uh, I think this is a British military type guy. Uh, Soldiers, Scouts, and Spies, A Military History of the New Zealand Wars. Um, and that's the 2019. Keenan is 2021. And then someone named Belch. Uh, and this Belch book is like a real game changer. Again, I'll, I'll tell you more about all of these people. But uh, New Zealand Land Wars and the Victorian Interpretation of Racial Conflict, which is pretty perfect in terms of scramble for relating it back to the scramble for Africa, the attitudes towards native peoples and their land and so on. So for sure. So, uh, yeah, as usual, take it away, Dave. (laughs) Okay. Well, the, the Maori arrived somewhere between 1320 and 1350. There is no evidence of a previous civilization, which came as news to me. I don't know when or where I read it, but I was under the impression that the Maori arrived and were simply more aggressive and basically eliminated uh, earlier peoples. As I say, I don't remember where I got this, but now I can't find that anymore. So was I reading, you know, anti-Maori propaganda or, you know, justification for wars against them? I, I can't tell. Uh In any case, the Maori lived in extended family groups, which they called iwi. Uh, They're they're often translated as tribes. I don't know if that's quite fair, but it might be the closest expression in English. First European to discover it was the very well-traveled Abel Tasman. He sailed by in the early 1640s and uh, charted the west coast of the North Island, but he didn't land. And then Dutch cartographers... Uh, is Tasman Portuguese or Dutch? He, he's oh, the he's guy Dutch. who uh, found okay. Tasmania yeah, and Tasmania. it was named after him. Right. So he was busy, you know, exploring Indonesia and Australia and then found New Zealand. So the Dutch were the ones who named it. They called it Nova Zealandia. There's a Dutch province, one of the eight provinces called Zealand. So New Zealand gets its name from Dutch explorers and it, it stuck. And then, of course, your friend James Cook showed up, three voyages, <laughs> the first in 1769, and he circumnavigated and mapped the islands. And from then on, you started getting regular visits from explorers, missionaries, traders, and adventurers. They always seem to come in that order, right? Uh, there were whalers and sealers, many of them based in Australia, who were trading with the Maori for food, water, wood, flax, and sex. Unusual. These are basically sh- sh- like sailors, yeah. They're always yeah. at sea, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
most of the trade, the early trade, seems to have been peaceful. But then a French explorer or trader named Marion and 26 of his crew were killed, uh, one source says murdered in 1772, uh, and then eaten. So in a retaliatory attack, the French killed 250 Maori in a battle thereafter. In 1809, a ship called the Boyd uh, delivered convicts to Australia and then sailed to New Zealand uh, for wood. And I'm not sure how this came about, but they had five Maori men on board. One of them, Te Ara, was the son of a chief, and he was accused of stealing some pewter spoons. This is, you know, kind of ridiculous, but... The captain had him flogged uh, with a cat of nine tails. So basically, they tore his back open, uh, flogging him. There was a surgeon on board, uh, Alexander Barry, and he said the captain had been rather too hasty in resenting some slight theft. Well, flogging the son of a chief is possibly not a good opening to relationships. <laughs> Yeah, it turns out to have been hasty indeed. Yeah, so uh, when the crew of the Boyd, the captain and four of his crew, uh, landed in New Zealand looking for wood, uh, they were ambushed, uh, killed, and eaten. And then the Maori boarded the ship at night and killed most of the crew. Some of them uh, survived. Another Maori chief, Te Pahi, uh, arrived. His intention was to trade. And the survivors called out to him. And I don't know where they were, whether they were in the rigging or, or uh, in a boat. And he helped a few of them escape. Now, apparently, the Maori who had captured the ship were very interested in the muskets and gunpowder they found. Uh, but they spilled a lot of it and then made a mistake striking a flint. And there was an explosion. It killed nine of the Maori and the cargo of the ship, which consisted largely of whale oil, uh, caught fire. So the Boyd is a famous episode with, a, you know, an exploding, burning ship. And it led to reprisals, of course. So in 1810, sailors from five uh, whalers launched a revenge attack. And by mistake, they attacked the wrong chief. They attacked Tepahi, the one who had helped some of the survivors. That's a familiar story too, isn't it? Revenge attacks and... Yeah, and they and they attacked the same people that help them out in the first place yeah or innocent unarmed people who couldn't possibly have committed the original act that you're getting vengeance for uh, Europeans began to settle especially on the North Island Christianity was introduced somewhere around 1814 the Bible was translated into Maori language and then the Maori often uh, spread Christianity on their own even before European missionaries arrived European settlers, some of them, bought land from the Maori, but this is going to lead to future problems in a, in a story we've seen before because of different concepts of land ownership, and then you get conflict, and then you get resentment and bitterness, and, well, the usual story. The effects on the Maori seem to have varied. In some areas, there was very little change, except maybe for metal tools acquired in trade with other tribes, uh, fish hooks, axes, usually. But the musket had a major impact. Uh, 
family groups or tribes with muskets would then attack tribes who didn't have muskets and, and kill or enslave them. So guns, muskets became the most valuable item of trade and the Maori would, would exchange huge quantities of goods for a single musket. And this led to what are known as the musket wars from 1805 to 1843 uh, until some kind of new balance of power was established after most tribes had acquired muskets. <laughs> Reminds me of, uh, you know, all of the Western civilization class, which is about like this balance of power in Europe, right? Everybody has. Yeah. Uh, but um, so a couple of notes here about the land. Uh, uh, Keenan, Keenan wants to call the, the big wars between the British and the Maori, the land wars. Cause he's like, that's what they're about. Cause there there's, there hasn't been a, a solid name like the name for those wars hasn't really stuck yet apparently even still so some people call them the new zealand wars some people call them uh the they tried to call it the anglo maori war you know kind of like the anglo zulu war or the anglo whoever the british were fighting <laughs> war right the anglo nepal war whatever uh but that also didn't stick so uh keenan's proposing that they be called the land wars but so far i think they're still called the new zealand wars um uh the musket wars is interesting too because cliff simmons who's a military oriented historian he talks about how the maori adopted the musket and <clears throat> artillery actually um and other innovations like trenches and stuff um they kind of adapted their palisades they already had palisades like kind of like short walls that they fought from but mm -hmm. but they um they adopted musket. They were very keen to adopt muskets and artillery. And, and Simon says, you know, that contrasts with the Zulu or with the Australian Aboriginal people who had a different uh, idea of warfare. Like they were more th thought of warfare as more ceremonial and, and Maori were a little more uh, closer to the European idea of warfare, I guess they had. Um and Balich, again, the 80s writer that everybody kind of that kind of overturned the understanding of the wars, uh, he says he concludes this. He says, all in all, Maori society bent but did not break under the impact of early European contact. The few hundred European missionaries, traders and whalers who lived with the Maoris in 1838 did so on sufferance protected by their value, not their power. It's interesting because there doesn't seem to be like as I'm not seeing like as strong a disease story as no. everywhere else. Hey, no. I wonder why that is. Who knows? Yeah, that was surprising to me, too. I was, well, not entirely surprised, but I, I want to point out that a lot of the fighting in this period is not strictly Maori versus invading Europeans. Yeah. There are lots of Maori versus Maori Wars, and um, even others. Uh, in 1835, the Moriori people who lived on uh, the Chatham Islands were attacked, uh, enslaved, and nearly exterminated by mainland Maori, the Ngati Mutunga and the Ngati Tama, so two iwis or two family groups. In the 1901 census of New Zealand, only 35 Moriori were recorded. Their numbers, you know, subs 
subsequently increased, but that's perilously close to uh, disappearing entirely. And on the other side, the Europeans, there was no um, governor. I mean, sailors and adventurers simply showed up and they were pretty lawless. The governor of New South Wales in Australia had uh, legal authority over New Zealand. But he's in Australia, which is, look look at a map, it's pretty darn far. Yeah, it's really far, you guys. <laughs> like <laughs> We think of it, as, it's not like Canada and the U.S. where you can walk. Like, these 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 places are far apart. And the, even the two New Zealand islands are pretty far apart. Yes. Uh, from each other. So Yeah. So the British appointed a resident in 1832 named James Busby. But they gave him... You know, he didn't have any troops and he had no legal authority. So, you know, what is he supposed to do? I I don't know. Uh, Big turning point, the Treaty of Waitinga, or sorry, Waitangi uh, in 1840. So there was a company, the New Zealand Company, and they announced their plan to buy large tracts of land from the Maori and establish colonies in New Zealand. And merchants in London and in Sydney, Australia, uh, they liked this, so they were encouraging the British government to take stronger action. Plus, the you know the adventurers and sailors, the lawlessness is getting embarrassing. So the British want to clamp down on this, and also finally take control of New Zealand before another power steps in. So there are American whalers there. And the French uh, established a settlement on the South Island. So the British want to stake a firm claim and, you know, grab it before the others can move in. So Captain William Hobson was sent to New Zealand with instructions to persuade Maori chieftains to cede their sovereignty to Britain. So this is interesting. This is, you know, decades before the same sort of thing goes on all over Africa. It's the, you know, sign them up. Uh, They don't use the word protectorate immediately, but it's awfully similar. So he somehow managed to gather 40 chiefs at Waitangi and get them to sign. And the British uh, then took copies of the treaty around the New Zealand islands for signature by other chiefs. So quite a few of them uh, refused to sign. A number were never asked. But in total, more than 500 eventually signed the treaty. And it's your pretty standard deception. There are two versions of the treaty. So the Maori uh, gained sovereignty over their lands and possessions and were granted all the rights of the British citizens. I mean, it's pretty hard to believe that's going to be honored, but that's what it says. What What the British got depends on which version of the treaty, which language version of the treaty you're looking at. The English version, it looks a lot like um, the, the crown gains full sovereignty over New Zealand. But in the Maori version, the British crown gains Kawanatanga, which is uh, arguably quite a bit less power. I mean, yeah, basically... So- there's no Maori word for sovereignty at the time. 
there's a so Keenan has this whole thing about this these concepts. So it was <laughs> it's interesting to to read uh, Keenan especially. I mean, all of it as a, as a non New Zealander or uh, I guess that's uh, is that what a person a Kiwi? I guess is a non Kiwi, um, but he uses a lot of Maori words <laughs> and, and so early on he talks about this concept of sovereignty for the Maori, which is uh, tetino ranga tira tanga. So I get, you know, if you look at the words, the word tanga is common or, you know, so yep. there's, there's, there's some, it probably means power or something. And then clearly it's not the same thing they gave the crown <laughs> <laughs> no <clears throat> oh and one more difference uh Ma- the maori were given the right to sell their lands yeah. so obviously they own the land but in the english version of the treaty they can only sell to the british crown uh, <laughs> that's a big difference a little yeah a little different so a lot of uh, <coughs> keenan i mean all of these guys keenan simons Balich, they all talk about how until at least the 1840s, um, the British on the islands really needed the Maori. So even for the wars, right? Like you were saying, a lot of the combatants on the British side were Maori, right? Right. In, in these wars. So they needed them. Um, so in that, that's the sense that I was saying earlier that it's very similar to Canada. They make um, treaties uh, when they need um when they need them uh and then they always have this plan and these clauses <laughs> to go back on it later yeah. um the other thing that's interesting though is like everything seems to go back to this treaty of waitangi in new zealand like in right. canada there's so many there's all the number treaties there's toronto purchase there's all these treaties but in um and in the u.s of course all the broken treaties but in um in in Australia, there's no treaties at all. They decided they didn't want to do that. Um, but in New Zealand, it's like just this one one big treaty. Um, yeah, with five with at least five hundred signatories. Whereas amazing. there's no there's no Canadian treaty with that many. Yeah, uh, yeah, tribes signing at the same time. Yeah, it's incredible, and it seems to cover you know pretty much all the land. Um, here's another interesting note that I I found. Um, in Keenan quotes uh, one of the chief commissioners of lands, um, Donald McLean, writing in 1857. Uh, and Donald McLean says, um, every possible facility should be afforded to the young and more intelligent natives to acquire land by repurchase from the crown. So I guess this is talking about that clause, right? Where they sell it to the crown and then they, the crown gets to sell it back. Um, in order that their present system of communism may be gradually dissolved. And then they may be led to appreciate the great advantage of holding their land under a tenure more defined and more secure for themselves and their posterity, etc. But I just found it interesting that they use the word communism. And, uh, you know, we've got to wean them off of their communism. Now, so, did McLean yeah. said this in 1857? Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, the word only comes into use in the 1840s. In the manifesto, right? I mean, I think the manifesto is 1848. Yeah, Presumably. I mean, community and communal and all those words yeah. with the same root are older. But but he's talking about land tenure, right? Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. So it's like 
it's like a case of like calling native people communist and as a bad thing, obviously. (laughs) Wow. So he was hip to the lingo. He must've been hip to the lingo. I mean, yeah, there must've been some, some of these guys must've been very knowledgeable about the left. Yeah. So So, uh, Hobson, the guy who, uh, got this treaty signed, uh, died very shortly thereafter, 1842. And the new governor, Robert Fitzroy, uh, was there from 1843 to 45. Uh, he took some legal steps to recognize Maori customs. If you've heard the name before, he's more famous for something else. He was captain of the HMS Beagle during Darwin's voyage. So he seems to have made an effort to get along. But his successor, he was only there uh, three years, his successor, George Gray, promoted rapid cultural assimilation, wanted to reduce Maori land ownership, uh, reduce their influence, and of course, curb their rights. Uh, And yet the same guy uh, convinced the British government to delay large-scale settlement on the grounds that a large number of Europeans... And, and they used the, uh, I think the Maori word, pakeha, uh, couldn't be trusted to pass laws that would protect the entrance, the interests of the uh, majority, the, the Maori majority. Nonetheless, there was a pretty rapid and pretty massive influx of settlers. In 1831, there were only 1,000. By 1881, 500,000. And 400,000 of those were British. 300,000 of them stayed. So you get the usual people come and then aren't too thrilled and leave. But three quarters of the British settlers stayed. And uh, they seem to have had a pretty crazy birth rate. So their numbers were increasing really, really rapidly. And (laughs) well, scary for the Maori who had clearly not seen this coming. They really underestimated how many settlers were, were going to arrive. So some of them lost their lands to the crown. Some of them prospered, usually by selling food to the new towns. You're quite right that the uh, settlers depended on the, the Maori. And, of course, you have conflicts being sparked. So the Wairau affray of 1843, when uh, settlers led by a representative of the New Zealand company uh, attempted to clear Maori off their land for surveying. And they did this holding a false title deed, you know, a forgery. And uh, they also tried to arrest uh, two chiefs of the Ngati Toa, so Te Ra- Rauparaha and Te Rangihaita. Yeah, so in the end, they did uh, end up uh, arresting Rauparaha. But um, Rangi Hayata uh, fought a number of encounters with them and and uh, was never <laughs> caught. Uh, he managed to escape and died a natural death in 1856. Uh, there's a historian, Cowan, who wrote kind of like the official history in the 1920s of these wars. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about him uh, in a little in a few minutes, but. Cowan, <laughs> Cowan's conclusion, then this Cowan's writing in 1922. 
or so. And he says when when Rangiheyata died in 1856, uh, Cowan says, so passed a type of the old pagan order, a true irreconcilable, averse to anything of the white man's but his weapons of war. <laughs> Which, uh, you know... If you gotta, <laughs> if you gotta be not averse to one exactly one thing, that's probably the one. Yeah, we'll take your guns. Uh, <laughs> that, that's about it. <clears throat> yeah, but that's another standard, you know, that we've seen around the world, where uh, as dangerous as the British crown is to you, uh, the local settlers can start things up on their own and can make matters worse so fighting broke out because of this 22 europeans were killed as well as four or six maori um and and the the governor i mentioned fitzroy uh, investigated the incident and declared the settlers were at fault so this uh incident the wairau affray also called the wairau massacre which tells you who won uh the only armed conflict of the New Zealand wars to take place on the South Island. Everything else was on the North Island. Oh, wow. I, Keenan, uh, Keenan wrote about, um, the wars and, and his map was only of the North Island. And I found myself wondering why that was. And now I guess, well, there you go. Uh, another incident, 1845, the Flagstaff war. So another chief, uh, of the Ingapuhi, Honaheke, uh, he cut down the flagstaff at Korororeka because it had originally flown two flags, but whatever flag was being used for the Maori was pulled down, and now that only the Union Jack was there. So he simply cut the flagstaff down. Uh, they also had land grievances. Unfortunately for Honaheke, most of his iwi, the Ingapuhi sided with the government and there was a battle Te Ahuahu purely Maori, 500 on one side and 300 on the other so one of the chiefs, Te Ruki Kawiti, set up a, a hilltop fort and the British came and bombarded it with cannon and it did very little damage so you're right about the palisades they were, they were pretty solid and uh, covered in layers of flax as well which made them virtually bulletproof. Of course, when I say solid, I don't mean that the cannons, cannonballs aren't hitting them, but they give a little bit, right? Whereas a stone or, or brick wall has no flex in it, these palisades have a little bit of give so that effectively cannonballs are, are bouncing off. So the British commander, Colonel Despard, was waiting for a 32-pound gun that's a huge cannon for this period. So the little guns weren't doing anything. He's waiting for a bigger one. So the, uh, Ma- the Maori sortie, they came out of their fort and captured a, bit, a British flag, uh, which they then hung upside down at half-mast under a Maori cloak. So they knew <laughs> the significance of the flags, and I think they knew the reaction that they were going to provoke. So Colonel Despard... Uh, feeling insulted, uh, lost his temper and decided to attack that same day, uh, losing 33 dead and 66 wounded. (laughs) So Despard was going to retreat, but his Maori allies persuaded him to stay. 
and the defender slipped away during the night. This is a, a routine that we'll see again. The new governor, uh, Gray, came with more troops, heavier guns, and captured one of Kawiti's fortresses at Ruapekapeka. Uh, and after that, the two chiefs, Hene and Kawiti, were ready for peace. They seem to have realized the British just had more resources. Plus, they're fighting a lot of their own people who were on the British side. So this conflict was settled without uh, confiscation of the chief's land. That's an, an interesting result. In 1846, another conflict, the Hutt Valley, another one of these uh, land purchases by the New Zealand company that are uh, dubious to say the least. I don't know, I don't know if it's a, a scam or a forged document, but the settlers decided to move in to the land in question before disputes over who really owned it were resolved. And the Maori didn't like this, so they raided a, uh, an imperial stockade at Bullcutt's farm. Uh, eight British soldiers were killed, two Maori. And then this was followed by the Battle of Battle Hill, great name. And again, this is a mostly Maori versus Maori fight. The settlers uh, in Wanganui got nervous, <clears throat> demanded protection, a military force was sent. And in 1847, April... Uh, they accidentally shot uh, a minor Wanganui Maori chief, which led to a quick, bloody reprisal on a settler family. Then the perpetrators of this attack were captured and hanged. That led to a major raid against the town. Homes plundered, burned, livestock stolen. The Maori besieged the town before uh, launching a frontal attack. This is July 1847 and a peace settlement was reached in 1848. So you try to steal their land, uh, they retaliate, or you know you shoot a Maori, they retaliate, you escalate, they escalate, and that seems to be a pattern that's going to be carried on. Something I found interesting, though, about all of these conflicts, collectively they seem to have had an impact on the Maori thinking. So this led to the Kingitanga. There's that Tanga word again. Uh, in English, it's known as the Maori King movement. So there's an attempt to set up a Maori king who would have, you know, equal status to the British in order to stop the loss of land. I found the Maori dictionary. Uh... Teaka, it's called. And my God, does Tanga mean a lot of things. Yep. Um, there's the circumstance, time, or place of striking or beating. There's the addition or publication of a hard copy. There's a suffix used to make verbs into nouns. Maybe that's probably what we're seeing here. Um, so they're taking an action and turning it into a noun, right? Something like this. There's lots of, <laughs> just a lot of meanings, but I think I think that's why we keep seeing it at the end of a, at the end of words because it's a suffix. So you take <clears> the action and you make a noun. Um, okay, so a couple of things on the historiography because we're starting into the wars and how they kind of it kind of rolls uh, right into the wars right after starting from the Treaty of Waitangi on. 
Um, so Simon's book, uh, Soldiers, Spies, something like this, uh, it's interesting because he focuses on intelligence. So it's all about like what they knew about each other. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I, I think about like there were several 1857 India books that were also on that intelligence and spy stuff that was going on. And it's around the same time. Um, but the other thing that Simons does that's nice is there's a kind of a roundup of all the historiography of the war, the Maori uh, land wars uh, in New Zealand. So um, obviously for, uh, contemporaries from the 1840s, 50s and on, especially the scramble, hard scramble period, 1880s, uh, they view these wars as basically like heroic colonialism right so there was there and there's a lot of participants in the war a lot of british participants in the war that um write about it as like their own heroic exploit so one one uh thomas gudgeon who was a lieutenant in the war he wrote a book called the defenders of new zealand who do you think the defenders <laughs> of new zealand are? <laughs> so uh simon says this was actually about the deeds of men who had come to new zealand to fight the maori and that account is full of massive European immigration, hope, optimism, and a belief in a brave new future carved out of the bush and wrested from the natives of the land in the name of progress and civilization. Um, so Simons actually contrasts this with a different view of history uh, but presented by someone like William Pember Reeves, who was a New Zealand's high commissioner to London, who wrote a book called The Long White Cloud, 1898. And he describes New Zealand as an adventuresome democratic society, which in pioneering bold new reforms had become the world's social laboratory. (laughs) So both of those are kind of colonial though, right? So it's like, uh, um, and then there's James Cowan, who I mentioned, uh, 1922, the New Zealand wars and the pioneering period. This is government funded (laughs) two volume official history. Um, and we've mentioned him before. And then there's 1986, I have a 1988 version, um, of James Belich, uh, The New Zealand Wars and the Victorian Interpretation of Racial Conflict. And Belich is interesting because he says, you know, look, Cowan is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. typical of the 1922, um, of the 1920s. You know, give him a break. Like, it's obviously racialist and so on, but for for the time he argues that Cowan was actually not too bad. He had some very sympathetic portrayals of the Maori and, and he was like, it's use It was useful for people like Belich to, to have those histories. Um, but Belich is the game changer as far as how it's viewed. And Simons writes, Belich argued that Maori had developed a strategic approach to the fighting and had been considerably closer to winning than previously acknowledged. The development of innovative pa, that's the word for like their defenses and palisades, right? And the creation of a pan-Maori type of command were central planks in his argument. For the first time, Maori were presented as the strategic and intellectual equals of the British. The book was soon accepted as the new orthodoxy and acclaimed as a brilliant demolition of the traditionally understood version. It influenced a generation and is still a key reference point for any analysis of the wars. So... Um, you know, I read these three books, uh, Keenan, Belich, and Simons, and I, I honestly, I can recommend all three. Um, probably Belich, if you want like the closest 
narrative closest thing to a narrative history of like who did what and when and where that's mm-hmm. probably Bellich, but simon's is pretty cool and keenan is really good uh maori perspective lots of keenan's very legally minded so it's a lot of uh i find these legal histories really funny dave because it's like there'll be a big war and then they'll say uh you know the big war until 1857 and then they'll say in 1858 the british decided to change the law uh, why why would they do that (laughs) but they they kind of noticed the legal change and not what what led to the legal change right um so Belich, uh so there's a long quote from Belich that i want to that i want to talk about just summarizing the war he says the new zealand wars were not as is sometimes suggested storms in a teacup or gentlemanly bouts of fisticuffs but bitter and bloody struggles as important to new zealand as were the civil wars to england and the united states uh and remember the u.s civil wars going on around the same time Uh, In proportion to New Zealand's population at the time, they were large in scale. Some 18,000 British troops were mobilized for the biggest campaign. These forces opposed a people who, for the most of the war period, did not number more than 60,000 men, women, and children. 18,000 troops were to Maori manpower what 50 million were to contemporary Indian manpower. The Maori resistance against such odds was remarkable, and the story is worth telling in itself. But the wars were also crucial in the development of New Zealand race relations, as they marked a watershed in the history of the country as a whole. More than this, they were examples of that widespread phenomenon, resistance to European expansion. Their history can tell us something about the character and interpretation of other conflicts, and about the response of non-European peoples to the imperial challenge, which is like you know, right up my alley as far as, um, you know, what my interest. So yeah, I, I like this. Uh, I like the, these uh, sources and Belich in particular is pretty well, cool. I, <clears throat> I think it's worth telling the story in a little more detail precisely because of, of the difference in the results yeah. of, of this yeah. resistance. <clears throat> There's something really different about the fighting and about, you know, what comes out of it. So the first Taranaki War starts in 1860, yet another fraudulent land deal vetoed by a a Maori chief and approved by Governor Brown, even though he knew that it was going to lead to fighting. So he brought in 3,500 troops from Australia, plus militia, plus volunteers, and Maori, uh, the Maori, they had somewhere between a few hundred, maybe maximum 1,500. So he's bringing in like three times their number. Uh, A series of battles were fought. Okay, you know, small battles, relatively speaking, but for New Zealand, pretty big. Imperial casualties, 238. Maori casualties, 200. And and right away, this is so different from what we've seen in so many other colonial wars, imperial conflicts. You know, you don't... <clears throat> Sorry, you don't have the disproportionate casualties because of uh, the disparity in weapons, right? Both sides have the same weapons, although, you know, the British have the huge guns, which the Maori don't. The, the uh, result was a ceasefire, a very humiliating ceasefire for the Brits. Uh, I don't know if this led to the end of Governor Brown, but a new governor, Sir George Grey, different Grey, this is the one who later became Prime Minister of New Zealand, 
uh, he asked the colonial office for 10,000 soldiers so that he could invade uh, the Waikato and capture the stronghold of this group that was promoting the Kingitanga, so the movement to have a, a Maori king. So as you pointed out, at the peak of hostilities, there's 18,000 British soldiers supported by artillery, cavalry, local militia, and they're fighting about 4,000 Maori warriors. That that's not the usual colonial <laughs> yeah you know numbers it's it's usually the opposite right yeah so even though they're outnumbered the maori were able to keep fighting with some pretty specialized techniques i was really curious like, how did they do this so they had anti-artillery bunkers their their fortified villages called pa were really well placed they they just simply block the enemy's route of advance i mean you can try going cross country going around them the terrain suggests that's not going to go well so you're coming down you know your your route of advance and you come to face to face with this fortified village so now you have to besiege it attack it you know whatever you choose Attacking it directly is going to lead to heavy casualties. But then if you want to bring up heavy guns, or if you want to sit there and siege, the defenders always have an escape route. They always have a back door, and they can quickly abandon this paw without taking significant losses. Both sides used guerrilla warfare tactics. Often they were fighting in, in pretty dense bush, but a paw could be really easily and, and quickly built. And they were so uh, clever, the, the construction of these paws. Rifle pits, trenches you mentioned, uh, shelter from artillery. And almost always built so that they were impossible to completely surround. But usually they would be built where one face, one side of the wall invited attack from that direction it it looks like you could attack it from that side which usually turned out to be a bad idea and these forts were completely expendable the british would bombard them then attack and the maori could withdraw whenever they wanted and dozens dozens of these paw were built uh, very quickly and the british really had no solution well sorry they had the age-old solution the one that goes back to the romans and even before the maori are part-time fighters they also have to produce their own food and they depend on support from villages whereas the british soldiers are professionals and, and i mean by that they can fight all year round they don't have to gather their own food they can you know find supplies and they can keep fighting indefinitely at any time and eventually they're going to figure it out so the second taranaki war the british adopted the oh i don't know how long it's been in their playbook the scorched earth policy so one historian brian dalton said the aim was no longer to conquer territory but to inflict the utmost punishment on the enemy inevitably there was a great deal of brutality much burning of undefended villages 
indiscriminate looting in which loyal Maoris often suffered. Yeah, and Keenan said this more or less too. Uh, not Keenan, sorry, Cowan, uh, the 20, 1922 history said, you know, the only policy that worked was boldly entering the mountains and destroying the food supplies in the native strongholds. Of course, this is easier said than done in some ways. Um, Keenan, meanwhile, points out that there was a, a, you know, British army and constabulary commanders saw value in waging war through the colder months to attack Maori strongholds and villages when they were thought to be most vulnerable. Um, there's also like a transformation over the course of these wars, right? Again, during the Civil War, uh, similar the U.S. Civil War, similar to same time as the Morant Bay uprising we did an episode on, 1865 in Jamaica, mm-hmm. uh, where they did all that, um, you know, where all those nasty attitudes came out. And it's this, it's this kind of like bitter, you know, British, like we, after everything I've done for you, how could you do this to me, right? Um, so the British, uh, there's, a, there's an editorial in 1863, um, Southern Cross, I guess it's a newspaper called the Southern Cross, um, and it's a, it goes like this. We have dealt with the natives of this country upon a principle radically wrong. We have conceded them rights and privileges, which nature has refused to ratify. We have pampered ignorance and misrule. And now we experience their hatred of intelligence and order. The bubble is burst. The Maori is now known to us as what he is and not as missionaries and philanthropists were willing to believe him. In reality, the Maori is a man ignorant and savage, loving darkness and anarchy hating light and order, a man of fierce and ungoverned passions, bloodthirsty, cruel, ungrateful, and treacherous. So, uh, yeah, not, it's not, they're not, uh, they're not like trying to get along anymore. No, no more Mr. Nice colonizer. Oh, because they were so nice at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Interesting Maori response. The, the Pai Marire movement, uh, it was commonly known as uh, Hau Hau. So this is a Maori religion, a syncretic religion, meaning they, they brought in elements of several faiths or, or, or several ideas uh, together. It was founded in Taranaki by a prophet named Te Ua Haumeni. And this spread around the North Island, 1863 to 1874. So there were some biblical parts, some Maori spiritual elements, and it promised deliverance from the Pakea, from the British domination. Now, the motives were originally peaceful. Uh, I, I can't, you know, guarantee this, but the name seems to be translated as good and peaceful. But with the New Zealand government's military operations continuing and spreading, the movement became, well, it it got a violent wing. So there was uh, some violent expression of Pai Marire. Uh, And Dalton says, after 1865, if you're a Maori fighting against the government, you're going to be called Hau Hau. So there's no recognition on the British side of any difference between them. But there are also conservative Maori who do not subscribe to the movement, and they're going to be fighting against the Paimariri movement or the Hau Hau as well. So we get the East Cape War in 1865, Titokowaru's War in 1868. He was a, a 
a pretty gifted military leader. I don't know where these guys keep coming from, but outnumbered 12 to 1 in one battle, and he still won. Apparently, he never lost a battle. Uh, raided European settlements, and he was one of the uh, prophets of the Pai Mariri movement. Uh, one of the pa the pause, one of the forts that he abandoned was a strong position, and the reasons why he abandoned it are still a little bit cloudy, a little bit mysterious. Uh, his army dispersed. Simultaneous war in 1868, Tekuti's war, and this is in the Chatham Islands. Uh, or sorry, he he was uh, captured. He was held on the Chatham Islands for two years without a trial. But he escaped along with about 200 Maori prisoners of war and their families. So there's that other part of the British playbook. Capture these guys and ship them somewhere else and, and you oh, know, yeah. dump them. That's on... India. That's India in a nutshell, right? It happened in, in Africa quite a few Africa times we too, saw yeah. this. Yeah, of course. But they escaped. Uh, and got back to New Zealand with their families. And then Tekuti asked to be left in peace, but obviously you can't be allowed to live in peace, so the government troops relentlessly pursued him. He struck back and attacked European settlers and some of his Maori opponents in a fight known as the Poverty Bay Massacre. So you can tell who's you know telling the story. Uh, 51 men, women, and children were killed and their homes were burned. He was besieged, escaped, but some of his followers were captured by pro-British Maori and executed, but 130 of them. Seems to have had an Old Testament vision of, you know, the return to a promised land, release from oppression. I guess that, that image really stuck with him. There was a 5,000 pound reward offer for his capture, which never happened. He was pardoned in 1883. Wow. I mean, it reminds me of the Taiping rebellions happening at the same time too, right? In China, there's this, there's these spiritual movements of, uh, and, uh, you know, the Mahdi in the Sudan. <laughs> yeah. 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 Quite a few uh, responses like that religion and mysticism and, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after these wards, uh, large areas of land were confiscated by the government. The New Zealand Settlement Acts in 1863, here's one of your, your laws, uh, supposedly as punishment for rebellion. But in Yeah, they wouldn't have done it anyway. They were just going to leave them alone if they hadn't rebelled, right? Okay, yes, there's that. <laughs> there's also the fact that the uh, that land was confiscated from both loyal and rebel tribes alike. Uh, some of it was paid for later. Uh, some of it was returned to Maori owners later on, but usually not the original owners. Uh, and I, <laughs> I don't understand why you would confiscate land from Maori who fought on your side. Just... Probably it was nice land. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Wow. <laughs> and there was a group um, who tried nonviolent resistance. This was interesting too, because this doesn't really fit with the uh, European or British uh, 
vision of the Maori, certainly not the description that you gave before. So a nonviolent town, Parihaka, uh, founded by Te Witi Orongome, and the population grew to about 2,000 before the, the government sent you know, troops to arrest Tewiti and his followers. This is 1881. Got to yeah. arrest those nonviolent guys. Yeah, well, it's because it, I've been reading a lot about um, nonviolence lately. <laughs> okay. And uh, I've been reading sort of the, I guess, the pro-violence literature. <laughs> though though they, they reject that label, but, you know, uh, I, you know, uh, I, 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 I wanted to read about it more because I I always felt like there was more to the story of Indian independence than the successful Gandhi nonviolence. So I've 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 got a few things lined up for that when we're it's gonna be a while before we get there, I know, but uh but there's also the, a a bunch of good stuff coming out about the black um liberation i guess movement in the in the 1960s uh and how all of those nine non-violent act activists you know in the martin luther king kind of movement in the u.s south all carried guns <laughs> in there when they weren't doing non-violent activism mm. <laughs> they had their houses were full of guns they walked around with guns um and you know i think they probably that was probably the right call but um so there's this writer, an anarchist writer, Peter Gelderloos. I guess he's Dutch background, but based in the U.S. He he wrote a couple of books. One was called How Nonviolence Protects the State, and then another one called The Failure of Nonviolence. And I was reading uh, about these things, not f- to research this show, but there was this this case about Tewiti and Parihaka, um, is one of Gelderloos's case studies as a, of a it's a case study a textbook case according to him of the failure of nonviolence. So he says, you know, Tewiti was arrested, the Maori who resisted alongside him removed, and all their land stolen. Um, on the other hand, he basically says, you know, the Maori have some land left and they ha- they still exist, and that's because they fought, not because they were nonviolent. He says, on the whole. Maori resistance to colonization was armed and combative both before and after Tewiti. They did not make it easy for the European colonists to take away their lands. Their survival is a consequence of the totality of their choices of resistance, along with other factors. Maori survival was won by the diversity of methods the Maori employed, from shooting colonists to peacefully plowing the lands they had usurped. So I think that's pretty fair, actually. Um it could be that I'm I'm headed away from the nonviolence direction anyway, but I, I I you know it's it's hard to argue this was a successful example of nonviolence. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, these these wars, you know, supposedly ended, but <clears throat> there were some later gasps. Uh, I found out about the dog tax war of 1898. Hmm. Now that that's a little unusual, but you know the causes and the results are rather familiar if if you're Canadian and and you know Canadian history. So all those wars, spread of disease, loss of land, you know confiscations of land, the uh, the cultural assimilation, all of this gradually leads to a situation where the Maori are suffering from poor housing, 
alcohol abuse, and, and just general disillusionment. Uh, you know, birth rates fall. The population dropped to a low of 42,000 in 1896. And apparently attacks on dogs was like the last straw for them. So there was an uprising, um, again, the North Island, uh, led by Hone Riwi Toya. And uh, it was kind of a bloodless war. They're, they fired a few shots and uh, another Maori uh, help you know de-escalate the the thing so that it didn't turn into a full blown war. Right. Um, here's a few more, I guess, ideological consequences of the wars. Um, there's the whole disappearing native story, mm-hmm. uh, which comes up. So A.K. Newman uh, wrote in 1881. Taking all things into consideration, the disappearance of the race is scarcely subject for much regret. They are dying out in a quick, easy way and being supplanted by a superior race. Uh, So it's not what happened, but that was definitely the story they tried to put on. Um, Then uh, there's another side of it, which is in 1885, Edward Trigier uh, wrote a book called The Aryan Maori. Um, so, uh, I guess I, I think this is Simon's, it might be Keenan, might be Belich, but anyway, he's quote, he's talking about this book, uh, deriving his ideas from contemporary anthropology and philology, Trigier, uh, that's T-R-E-G-E-A-R, argued that Maori and European were descended from the same Aryan ancestors. Despite <laughs> oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Despite criticism and even ridicule, <laughs> Trigier's idea caught on. The Maori was not a congenital inferior doomed to extinction, but a wayward younger brother who could be saved. But like the moderate version of the earlier legend, it encouraged an assimilationist view of the Maori past and future, and it fused with the myth of the New Zealand wars. Like the courage and chivalry displayed by the Maori during the wars, an Aryan origin indicated that the Maori was both worthy and capable of assimilation. Uh... The ordinary European, wrote Trigir, need not blush to own his brotherhood with the heroes of Orakau. So this is like the Hamitic, right? Like the Ethiopian. How could they have done so well militarily? Well, they must be. Actually. Yeah, they beat us in war, so they, they must be White. long long lost <laughs> tribe of Aryans. Yeah. Um, so Balich says these are both parts of the so-called legend of New Zealand race relations that emphasizes inevitability, minimizes the importance of conflict and Maori success in it, and presents a pattern of 19th century race relations, which is like a simple slope, short, straight, and for the Maori, downward. From this nadir, the Maori are said to have been hauled up by more enlightened Pakeha policy and a modern organization of their own, the Young Maori Party, which apparently advocated Maori-European amalgamation. Meanwhile, in reality, the great threat to the Maori-European symbiosis was less a material conflict of interest than a conflict of aspirations. A situation of parity with or inferiority to peoples like the Maori simply did not accord with British expectations. The British were not satisfied with part of the land, part of the economy, or part of the government. But the persistent stereotype of the fat and greedy settler has always been a scapegoat for less tangible factors. British expectations arose less from individual greed than from the racial and national attitudes that were part of the Victorian ethos and also very much part of the scramble for Africa. Um, and I'm there's not a, sure, sorry, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm not sure I agree with him entirely. 
Yeah, tell me. Uh, he's minimizing the importance of conflict and Maori success in it. I would say that the British went to a little bit of an extreme in their respect and even admiration for right. the warlike Maori. Right. Um, so, so their British interests. Bellich talks about this too, because the British interests were were. Um, it was really hard to create a create a consistent portrayal of the Maori because British interests in portraying them were so conflicted. Yeah. So they okay. wanted to encourage missionaries. So they portrayed them as, you know, very ready for the message of God. They wanted to encourage settlers. So they said they're dying out inevitably. They wanted to talk about how glorious their military victories were when they had them vastly outnumbered. Yeah. Um, and outgunned, they want to so steal they put... their land. So we have to portray them as savages. Yeah, and then yeah. they also wanted to portray the inevitability of their victory, so they portrayed them as helpless. So, you know, it's really hard to figure out what actually really happened. Um, and it's also these contradictions in war propaganda continue to play out, so it's interesting to see. How oh, yeah, happened. like, you know, again, similar to the Canadian situation, the, the New Zealand yeah. wars are, are continuing, but the battles yeah. are mostly in courtrooms and around negotiating uh yeah. tables so there are numerous reports by the waitangi tribunal so they're still you know rehashing this treaty uh criticized british crown actions during the wars but also found that the maori had breached the treaty as well so both sides you know guilty of not following it which is pretty reasonable considering that there were two versions so out of court settlements <laughs> Uh, of historical claims by the the uh, tribes. You could look up Treaty of Waitangi Claims and Settlements. There's a whole long list. Right. And as of two, uh, 2011, the, uh, the Crown started making formal apologies. Oh, wow. So that's a trend too, because Canada obviously just a few years before that did the mm -hmm. formal apology. Yep. And like Canada, like Australia, there was a gold rush, uh, New Zealand in 1861. And that led, of course, to uh, some pretty frenzied immigration. The population was over a million by 1916. And of course, the invitation to Chinese workers who were welcome for a very short while and then no longer wanted. You had the standard racist reaction and then you had uh, laws enacted to discourage them from coming, discourage them from remaining, preventing them from bringing their families over. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if they had a specific head tax like Canada, but similar, similar sort of reaction. Right. So uh, like a number of British settlement colonies, there was no aristocracy in New Zealand, but wealthy landowners obviously controlled the politics until 1891. And then the New, the New Zealand Liberal Party developed a policy of populism. Now, I know populism has a bad name these days, and, and perhaps deservedly so. But the idea was, let's appeal for popular support. Let's try to you know build a platform that the middle and working classes will like. So the liberals bought land from the maori for small families the maori still owned about five million acres in 1920. Uh, they ended up selling a million of that 
of those acres and leasing another three million. So the Liberals bought land and and granted it to small farmers. And then they started on a path of increasingly popular moves towards uh, the comprehensive welfare state that exists in New Zealand now. They introduced old age pensions. They brought in regulations uh, limiting the maximum hours of work. New Zealand was one of the pioneers of minimum wage laws and developed a, a system for settling in industrial disputes, which actually was accepted by both unions and employers, at least to begin with. Uh, in 1893, they extended voting rights to women. I did not know this. For New Zealand, the first country in the world to have universal female suffrage. And that's, that's really impressive when you compare it to other countries, you know, that are recognized as forerunners with, you know, voting for women. And Norway in 1913, uh, Canada and Britain, only partial in 1917 and 1918. So World War I was on, but Canada did a particularly stinky thing. They extended the vote. <laughs> You're familiar with this, right? They, they yeah. extended the vote to the mothers, wives, and daughters of soldiers in the Canadian Army because the main issue was conscription. If you're going <laughs> to vote, if you're voting for the government, it's a vote for conscription. So we know the soldiers will vote for because they want more guys over there to help them. And their women folk will vote for it. So we'll let them vote. Well, once you've <laughs> extended partial suffrage, it's pretty hard to take it back. Uh, by contrast, Switzerland had uh, universal female suffrage as of 1971. Did, did you did you say 1971? 1971. <laughs> New Zealand, 1893. And there was uh, apparently a, a pretty early feminist movement in New Zealand. Uh, some of their proponents they compared the subjection of women to white slavery. Uh, yes, there were, you know, connections to the temperance movement, uh, anti, an anti-prostitution campaign. But once they got the vote, boy, they didn't wait long. Uh, in 1893, Elizabeth Yates was elected mayor of Onehunga. She's the first woman in the British Empire to hold the office of mayor. And apparently she was pretty good. She cut the debt, reorganized the fire brigade, improved the roads and sanitation, and, of course, was defeated for re-election because too many of the men were hostile to having a woman, a female mayor. Was there a was there a debate about Maori franchise or were they always able to vote from when voting happened? Uh, that's a good question. I do not know. That's a, that's a very interesting. Yeah. I don't know when they got the vote. Let's You're see gonna, if I can find it. Yes, please. And meanwhile, in 1901, uh, New Zealand was offered the chance to join Australia in a confederation or a commonwealth, uh, which they turned down. Uh, seems, seems to have been a wise choice, certainly from a New Zealand perspective. Uh, good yeah, decision. So, uh, yeah, definitely a good decision. <laughs> Uh, probably better for the Maori too. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't look like there was any restrictions. Um, 
I'm looking at an article on the New Zealand history, Ngakoreroa Ipurangia Aotearoa website, and it's talking about the Maori and the vote. The 1852 Constitution Act was theoretically colorblind, but with a property requirement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the property requirement, the infamous property requirement. Um, Maori Representation Act 1867 sets up four electorates specifically for Maori, similar to what they did for gold miners. Yep. <laughs> so Maori had the same status as gold miners. Uh, permanent seats. 1893 Electoral Act gave all New Zealand women the vote, including Maori. Wow. Yep. Uh, other law changes completed the separation of the Maori and European electoral systems. From then until 75, only so-called half-castes were allowed to choose which seats they wanted to vote in. So they were voting, they had voting rights, but only for their separate electoral or electorates, I guess. Up until 1951, Maori voted on a different day from Europeans, often several weeks later. Uh, and I guess things changed in 1975. Uh, Maori were able to uh, succeed uh, in general electorates as European seats were now known. Yeah, so, so it's pretty complicated, but but pretty progressive, right? But yeah, again, progressive for the other compared to South Africa or Australia or Canada or even Canada, right? Because mm-hmm. Canada was also yeah, like you said, pretty pretty rotten. <laughs> Wow, I was looking at your notes for um, the next uh, the next round where we go. We're going island hopping, I suppose. Polynesia, Micronesia, and these are yeah. This will either be a big one or several small ones. I guess. <laughs> See you then. Okay.